I've really enjoyed the last uh, few months preaching and listening and being under the preached word of God through Galatians. We've been doing that for about three months now. Um, How many of you guys have been just crushed by the gospel over and over again these last few months? Just amazing gospel truth, life given to you, right? Justification by faith over and over again, week after week, is something that our hearts need to hear, right? As we continue in this book for another six months, uh, we're going to be uh, doubling back sometimes on passages that are just too big for us to tackle in one sitting. We're going to be doubling back, and the second time around, we want to see the other gospel implications of that passage for God's people. And so today is one of those times, this morning, we're going to be doubling back to the middle of Galatians chapter 2. This is the scene um, that Peter, or Paul is confronting Peter, and he is confronting him for not walking in step with the truth of the gospel, that his message is being betrayed by his actions. When uh, Matt McCann preached this a while back, he was hitting on the big idea of shrinking back from proclaiming the gospel of truth. And he called that, you're pulling a Peter. And he said that we ought to believe, we ought to hold true to the idea that Christ has made us sons and daughters of God. And in that truth, we should be emboldened to stand straight up and proclaim the truth of the gospel without fear. And I want to hear, uh, hit on today another truth in this passage. What I hope for you guys to hear and see is that a radical racial reconciliation shows off the gospel of God's radical grace. A radical racial reconciliation shows off shows off the gospel of radical grace. I realize that preaching racial reconciliation in our day and age is like preaching to the choir. I realize that. We live in a day and age where equality and tolerance are the rulers, rule, ruler by which we're measured. Right? Our society preaches equality and tolerance. We're 50 years removed from the civil rights era, and we all clearly believe that we're made equal in the image of God, that we all have this image stamped on us. We're all modern thinkers. We're all civilized people. We would never resort to a racist thought, let alone act on that. But I'm going to tell you something. Racism is not just a fad. Racism is not just a fad that has come and gone. Racism exists in our society today. I I want you to, to, to believe that because if you read the backlash from the Trayvon Martin incident, you would see it. If you read any news about the European soccer leagues and what's happening over there, you would see it. If you just read any of the YouTube video comment threads, you would see that exists today. You know why it exists? Because our hearts are so full of sin. Our hearts are so full of sin. 
Racism exists because apart from the grace of God, this radical grace, we tend to build walls. We tend to keep others, outsiders, at arm's distance. And what I hope you'll see this morning is that the foundation that supports a radical racial reconciliation is nothing other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not modern thinking. It's not an a, a, a increased social consciousness. It's not a better education. It's not government legislation. It's none of those things. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation and the power by which radical racial reconciliation happens. Um, Last year, my family got to travel to South Korea for about a week. It's been over a decade since we were able to go to the country that our parents are from. One of the highlights of the trip was uh, visiting uh, the demilitarized zone. I don't know if you guys know what that is. It's called the DMZ. It's a two and a half mile buffer zone that divides the two countries, North and South Korea. It was established in 1950. Um, It was established to uh, alleviate, as a compromise, to alleviate the tension between the two different countries. The Communist Republic of North Korea and the Democratic Republic of South Korea. So for over 60 years now, this legislated buffer zone has marked the existence of a peace treaty between the two countries. But ever since its installation, there has been nothing but war, death on both sides, blame, indifference, distrust. There's never been peace. And even though there were tourists that day walking around with their cameras, kind of smiling, enjoying the atmosphere, it was peaceful. There was uh, a level of peace there. There was no fire or gunfire. I was struck. As I approached the, the border, the DMZ area, there was a mounting tension. You could feel it and you could see it. There were more and more military posts. There were armed military guards and soldiers at attention. There was barbed wire everywhere. There was no peace there. In this DMZ, there's an area called the Joint Security Area, the JSA. Uh, this, is, uh, this area literally straddles um, the, uh, the, two, uh, the, the division between the two countries, the border. And in this JSA, there's a conference room, a room built strategically that straddles the line between the two countries. Straight down the middle of the room is the military demarcation line. Half of this conference room is on North Korean soil. Half of this conference room is on South Korean soil. Line straight through the middle of it. On this line, they have placed a long conference table. On this table, or around this table, they have two rows of chairs. One on the North Korean side, one on the South Korean side. They have armed guards on each side of the line. North Korean armed military 
South Korean armed military, each of them armed and ready, ensuring that no one from the other country steps over that line without proper authority. This is where the two Koreas come together, sit at this table, and talk diplomacy. This, in this environment, is where the two Koreas come together to talk about future peace. It's in this environment, only this environment, that the two Koreas can come and talk face to face as they seek reconciliation. But they've been unable to find it for 60 years. No wonder, right? I mean, it's a little ridiculous for us hearing about this, what they've done, what they've set up, right? How are you ever going to get to peace when everything you've set up to get there screams division? The actions of the Koreans betray their message. Surprisingly, this is not too far from what was happening in the early church in the context that we're about to preach through. The disciples were given a commandment. They were told to go and preach the gospel to all the nations. And the Holy Spirit on Pentecost gathers all the nations, tribes, and tongues, and all the peoples of God, brings them together, and just rains on them. And the people start speaking in a way that they can finally understand each other. The the curse of Babel begins to unravel here. And Peter the leader of the disciples, stands up among this crowd and he speaks out. And he basically says to the thousands that have been saved and to the uh, skeptical onlookers, he basically says, exactly. This is exactly what's supposed to happen. God has planned for this. This is God's plan all along from the beginning that salvation will be poured out on all flesh, men, Women, children, slaves, masters, Jew, and Gentile. That everyone who God would call to himself would be saved. And so the New Testament church was born, right? God planned to bring salvation to the world through his chosen people, the Jews. And it was finally happening. Thousands and thousands of people were being saved, Jews and Gentiles, everyone. And the church was bursting at the seams. If you were a Jewish Christian back then, you would have been just jumping up and down and be like, yes, this is exactly what was supposed to happen. Yes, God is finally bringing to fruition what he had planned all along. Yes, I get to see God's plan unfold. You would be celebrating, right? you would feel like the rest of the scriptures after Acts and the Pentecost would just be lined with exclamation points of people celebrating God's amazing work in saving Jews and Gentiles. But that's not what we find, right? As immediately as the Gentiles were being saved, the Jews were right there starting controversy begins the Jews were skeptical about this growth they were a little put off by it they were afraid they were uncomfortable about inviting these new Gentiles into the fold into the household of God but why why 
you got to remember the history between the Jews and the Gentiles, okay? For centuries, really from the beginning of time, Gentiles were the enemies of the Jews, right? Wherever the Jews were, they always had to watch their backs because there were Gentile nations that were ready to pounce, were ready to, to start a fight with them to, get, to gain their land, to gain their possessions. And sometimes God would flip the script on them as a, as a form of discipline for the Jews that were rebelling against God. God would put them under the rule of other Gentile nations. God would put uh, them under the rule of a powerful Gentile ruler who would oppress them, who would, who would seek to wipe them off the planet Earth. So no wonder these Jews who had experienced this for the course of their history, their existence, that they would be skeptical about these Gentiles coming into the fold of God. That they wouldn't receive them with open arms to see that their enemies were enjoying the same benefits, the same blessings that they were was just astounding, unthinkable. Why would God do that? So as many times as you read in the New Testament about the church just growing and bursting at the seams, you hear about accounts of Jews starting controversy, starting beef. The Judaizers were like this. We've heard about the Judaizers, right? These were the Jews, a, a fraction section of the Jews that uh, believed that once you were saved, that you were now able to fulfill the Mosaic law. That you are now supposed to fulfill the Mosaic law. They were rigid about the ceremonies of cleansing. They were rigid about circumcision. They were very, very rigid about food laws. They believed that anyone that considered, themselves, considered Jesus the Messiah had to now obey the Mosaic covenant and all of its laws. So it's into this tense and divided in a confused environment and climate that we're thrust into when we read Galatians 2. Peter was visiting the Galatian church in Antioch. This, this church in Antioch, or the city of Antioch, was a huge city, a huge metropolitan urban city, diverse people, Jews and Gentiles, a bunch of Jews, a bunch of wealthy, influential Gentiles, everybody together. It was the first church established in a Gentile area outside of Jerusalem. And it was growing rapidly. It's a diverse church, many people coming to know Jesus. It's in Antioch that the label Christian was first used because it was the first time that the unbelieving public was able to see that people who professed Christ, believed in the gospel, were living in true, diverse community. And they had never seen that before, so they just needed another label for it. It was a different category altogether. So we go to Galatians 2.11. But when Cephas, it's a name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Paul had a serious problem with Peter. Serious enough to oppose him straight to his face, go right at him, and serious enough to call him condemned for his actions. So what did Peter do to get Paul all riled up? Read on. For before 
certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision part. Now we see it, right? Peter had once been eating and fellowshipping and and in relationship with the, the Gentiles in the church in Antioch. But when a crew of people from Jerusalem, Jews, important Jews, came asking questions, Peter withdrew his fellowship from them. So why was this such a big deal? Right? Peter's a grown man. He could eat lunch with whoever he wants. He can make his own decisions. He's not hurting anybody. Why does Paul care so much about this? Jews had strict dietary laws, right? Jews could never enjoy bacon-wrapped scallops. Jews would never eat prosciutto. Jews would have never heard of camel steak, like many of you just never heard of that. So you could never, you would never see a Jew sitting with a Gentile at the same table because they could never eat the same meal together. So how did one of the most powerful Jews, most prestigious Jews, the most well-known Jew, Peter, find himself at the table with the Gentiles in a church in Antioch? The short answer is it took a miracle of God, really. In Acts chapter 10, in Acts chapter 10, there's an account of how God shows up and tells Peter that he needs to go to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius is an Italian general. He oversees a big army, and uh, God says to Cornelius, hey, you need to go get Peter, invite him into the house, and just stro- throw a huge Italian family dinner for him. And you know, some of you guys are Italian, you know at an Italian dinner you're going to have some meatballs probably, Those meatballs are going to have a little bit of pork in there, right, just to soften it up a little bit. You're going to have some cold cuts. You're going to have some cheese. You're going to have a great meal. And so to cut the shock that Peter would have felt by going to Cornelius' house and having this meal, God shows up to Peter in a vision. He shows up to Peter in a vision, literally brings down a buffet table from heaven. And on this buffet table is all types of meat, cooked exactly the way that you would hope. Barbecued. I don't know if that's true, but I think it is. Um, So on this table, he shows it to Peter. He says, Peter, eat this. Go at it. Peter's like, no, I can't do this. I've never eaten any of that type of meat before. God, I am clean. I can't do that. And God says, no, all this I have called clean. So eat it. And in this vision, God declares that all the dietary laws of the Jews are now no more. God declares all foods clean. So Peter ends up at Cornelius' table, and he explains exactly what happened as a page of redemptive history turns, and he stands up in front of everybody at Cornelius' table, all the Italian family that's gathered around, and he says this to them. He says, you yourselves know You know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me 
that I should not call any person common or unclean. Then he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, his family, all his half-cousins and whatever that are gathered together, and they are all get saved. All of them. The Holy Spirit falls on the whole household in a powerful way. And that was the beginning of Peter's transformation. He's beginning to see that the Gentiles did not have to fulfill the law of Moses to be saved. They didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to eat all the right foods. They were saved. And even more profoundly for Peter, he began to realize that as a Jew, he was also free from all the restrictions of the Mosaic law. That he was free to fulfill, he was free to be like a Gentile, eat like them. No one had to fulfill the Mosaic law to be saved. Both were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So when Peter was sitting at the table with the Gentiles, eating a bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich, he was living in the freedom of the gospel. He was living in the freedom of the gospel out of love, He was sitting with his Gentile brothers, eating with them, removing any obstacle uh, uh, from them so that the gospel could stay true, that they are justified only by faith in Christ, not by what they eat. Peter was now free to be a Gentile. But that's not what he kept doing, right? It says that a certain men came from Jerusalem, sent by James, and they came to Antioch. Historians have said that the church in Jerusalem did have Jews and Gentiles coming to believe and in the same household. But when they ate, they were told to go eat at separate tables. Jews eating kosher here, Gentiles eating non-kosher there. We don't know why these men came or what message they had or what questions they asked. But we know that whatever they said to Peter, it shook him to his bones. It took him off his track. We can safely assume that they had major issues with what was happening in the Antioch church. That these Jews and Gentiles should not be at the same table eating together. That's wrong. They're not supposed to be together. They're bound by different laws. They can't be eating the same food. The presence of these men in Antioch caused Peter to move away. To slide away from the Gentile. To remove fellowship from them. And this wasn't just a one-time deal. It wasn't. The, the verbs for drew back and separated himself are in the imperfect tense. What that basically means is that it has happened in the past and now continues to happen going forward. It's an ongoing, repeated action. So much so that people began to notice They began to notice that every day that Peter was not going to eat with the Gentiles, that he was only going to eat with the Jews. And we know at least one person saw that, Barnabas. Barnabas saw that and said, I guess I got to go eat with the Jews. So he then goes and eats with the Jews. The two major leaders of the church in Antioch are now exclusively fellowshipping with the Jews. Began to divide the church in two. It made Gentile second-class citizens in the church. It made them feel like that their salvation was of no value because 
unless they were becoming like Jews, they weren't really able to sit at the same table, weren't really a part of the community. So Paul jumps in and sees this whole thing, and he is furious. He's furious. How could the family of God be divided? Peter, you know better than this. Peter, you know better than this. You were the one that went to Cornelius' house. You saw the vision of God. You saw how God removed all dietary restrictions from the Gentiles. You saw how the Gentiles received the Spirit of God just like we did. They are saved. They're not bound by the same laws. None of us are. Peter, you know better than this. You preached to thousands of people. You preached that God planned to save the Gentiles and bring them into the household of God just like he does with the Jews. But then you go and do this? How could you do this? How could you be such a hypocrite, preach one message, but then act and live out another? Don't you realize? Don't you realize that you nullify the grace of God when you add works righteousness to his justification by faith? Peter, you're a Jew, right? You're a Jew, right? When, and when you, a Jew, are able to live like a Gentile by eating like a Gentile, that means you're free right? But if you make the Gentiles live like Jews by eating like Jews, what are you doing to them? You're shackling them. You're not letting them be free. Peter, you're a hypocrite. You know better than this. Peter, we're not just talking about who you would prefer who you are more compatible with. Peter, we're not talking about what foods you like better than others. The trajectory of the gospel, the kingdom of God is at stake here. How can you proclaim a gospel of radical grace when there's no racial reconciliation in the church? It's the very question that we're confronted with here today. Is Seven Mile Road a place where radical reconciliation happens to show off the gospel of radical grace? And I believe the resounding answer is yes. We all believe that to be true. We all believe that their image of God creates equality. We believe that we're made in that image and that we are now equal in his sight. But do we believe one thing and act out another. How is Korea ever going to become a nation that is reconciled if their actions, the very things that promote their peace, scream division? How, are, how is a church in Antioch ever going to preach the gospel of justification by faith alone if their message is you need to eat this way to be saved. Our lives must be in step with the gospel. Right? Paul confronts Peter on this in verse 14. He says, Peter's life is not in step with the gospel of truth. 
Your actions are not lining up with your words. Your life is not in sync with your thoughts. So how do we embrace radical racial uh, reconciliation? It's not reform. It's not legislation. It's not an elevated, sophisticated thought or social consciousness. It's none of those things. Read with me Ephesians 2.11. Paul says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You are without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace. It might reconcile uh, us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and preached peace to you who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the one Father. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate equalizer. For no man comes to the cross as anything more than a sinner in need of God's grace. The cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate equalizer. For no man comes to it as anything more than a sinner in need of God's grace. Ephesians 2.17 Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Paul takes a stake straight to the heart of racism in this verse. He's talking to Gentiles who are far off. He's talking to Jews who are near. He says both of them need peace preached to them. Both of them need peace that comes only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile both now have access with one spirit to the one Father. Ephesians uh, 2, 14 to 15. Jesus removed all walls of hostility. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in its ordinances. Jesus abolishes the ceremonial laws, the cleansing laws, the food laws, so that the Gentiles could have full citizenship in the kingdom of God. Gentiles and Jews together at the same table in fellowship. Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. They are fellow heirs, and now brothers and sisters in the household of God. 
in Christ, there is radical racial reconciliation. Jews and Gentiles live in peace. We who are many and different are now a common, one common race Christian. We all have daddy's eyes. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified in Christ. It's not I who live, no longer, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Christ, we are no longer limited by our ethnic and racial identities. We are so much more than that. We are defined by the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. He loved us, gave himself up for us. This doesn't mean you throw away your racial and ethnic identity. God has designed you in a perfect way and with a perfect identity and a perfect mix and we shouldn't dismiss it. You don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. But when we're Christians, our primary identity is one who is loved by God who gave himself up for us. The gospel breaks down all walls of hostility. Any worldly divisions, race, salary, degree, pedigree, anything, and humbles anyone's attempts to bring themselves, promote themselves above any other. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. We all live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest equalizer. That's why we're so excited about planting in Malden because that's an opportunity to clearly declare the gospel of radical racial uh, reconciliation. The, The gospel that says that this reconciliation that you see in this church, the diversity, is not created by any government entity. It's not created by any company. It is only created by the gospel of radical grace. No amazing strategy, no carefully laid out plan accomplished this. Only the gospel has the power to change the heart of people. Only the gospel has the, change, has the power to change the heart of a, a 65-year-old Haitian man who, who works an hourly wage somewhere at Costco. Only the, the gospel has the power to change a 23-year-old Italian girl working her way through uh, nursing school. Radical reconciliation shows off the gospel of radical grace. So what's that mean for us? How can we embrace this radical racial reconciliation? First thing, promote gospel culture. Promote gospel culture above any other culture. Peter was way more concerned with preserving Jewish culture than in promoting gospel culture. He was not living in the freedom that Christ brings. Rather, he was running back to the the shackles of the law. This means that we seek 
every opportunity to contextualize the one gospel truth to many cultures. This means that we remove all cultural barriers that exist so that people can come and hear the gospel of truth, that justification is by faith alone and not by any cultural thing. If I required everyone that visits my house to take off their shoes before entering, I've just elevated Korean culture above gospel culture. Let me tell you, if you come over to my house, you can come barefoot or with cleats on. It does not matter. You are welcome, right? It's not an issue. In what ways are you making others bend for you to be in relationship with you? In what ways are you making people bend for you to be in relationship with you? In what ways are you rebuilding those walls that Christ has completely demolished? Out of love, out of humble service to your neighbors, to others, do whatever it takes to clear that path for the gospel to be heard. Two, pursue relationship. Pursue relationship and not comfort. Peter was way more concerned with preserving his own comfort than serving the other. He was way more concerned with his status among the Jewish elite than he was with the well-being of his Gentile brothers and sisters. We all have to learn how to lay down our cultural preferences. And that is going to be hard, really hard. A church that embraces radical reconciliation, that's, uh, under, which is undergirded by the gospel, has to make sacrifices necessarily. Have you ever think, thought about it? Paul probably hated pork, right? His whole life he had grown up never eating it. His whole life he had grown up thinking that uh, associating pork with uh, being unclean. So in his mind, it's just like, oh, I'm not, I don't like that stuff. But you better believe when he was freed that he was sitting at the table with his Gentile buddies and that he was taking one for the team, that he was pounding down bacon to the glory of God. He was going to take that hit to bless his Gentile brothers. He wanted to show that none of this mattered, none of your cultural preferences mattered, that justification was about faith alone. Let me tell you this. The church does not exist for your comfort. It doesn't. The church does not exist for your comfort. Seven Mile Road does not exist to promote your comfort. Jesus demands your life. He does. Jesus demands your life, that includes your comfort. Bend for your neighbor. Serve your neighbor out of love. Do it at whatever costs come to you. Love your neighbor more than you love your comfort. Seven Mile Road, the gospel of Jesus Christ is freely offered to Jew and Gentile. And the only, and this is the only power, the only support 
the only reason why radical racial recognition exists. It's not because we're more modern. It's not because we're more thoughtful. It's not because we're now socially aware. The gospel alone. No military presence. No amount of peace treaties. No demarcation line across some imaginary dirt in the ground would create peace. Jesus alone secured peace on the cross. He has made many into one. He has brought enemies together and he's actually made them brothers and sisters, guys. That's crazy, astounding. And in Christ, God is crushed, torn down, demolished, whatever amazing word that you want to use there, all walls of hostility, all of them, every single one, he's crushed them all. So out of that reality, let's be a people that works really, really hard at keeping those walls right where they should be on the ground. That we would embrace radical racial reconciliation that shows off the gospel of radical grace. Let's pray. Father, we just delight in your word. We recognize that our hearts are prone to build walls. Our hearts are prone to keep people at a distance. Our hearts are prone to seek comfort. But God, I pray that you would help us to see the truth and the implications of the gospel of radical grace. That it necessarily means that we are for everyone to know Jesus. God, I pray that you would uh, create a gospel culture at Seven Mile Road, that we would be about all nations coming to know Jesus and not about preserving our own nation. I pray that you would do that to the glory of God for years and years and years to come here in Boston to your glory. I pray all these things.